All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to uh, chapter 14. Uh, we'll start, uh, we're going to basically take a look at the entire chapter today, but we get our official introduction to Samson. So last week we met Samson's parents and spent some time with them, but today we specifically get finally this long-awaited last judge of the book of Judges. We finally get to pick up Samson's story. We'll spend a few weeks, I think probably three weeks on Samson, just because it's the longest of all of the judges, and in many ways it's kind of the most telling of all of the judges to come, because it specifically spends quite a bit of time summarizing some of these major themes that we've been looking at through the book of Judges. So Samson, in a lot of ways, represents so much of what's been happening and what's going wrong with Israel as a whole. And I think what we're going to find is a lot of what unfortunately is wrong with us as a whole, too. So it's an interesting story. Uh, I also think it's probably an important story because most of us have probably heard of Samson. Samson's a pretty well-known biblical character. But for the most part, most of the story of Samson's life gets pretty much reduced down to marrying a bad Philistine woman and getting his hair cut off and losing his power. Right? That's pretty much the extent of what most of us are most familiar with about Samson's life. But it was interesting, the last few weeks I've been studying Samson, I've been shocked how much artwork is out there on Samson's life. You just Google search Samson, and there's tons of movies made about his life. He's the only one, really, of the judges that have movies. There's all of these portraits that have been painted of scenes, sculptures that have been made. And all of these paintings, these works of arts and these sculptures, they all tend to portray the same image of Samson, the movies from the 50s, all of them. Samson is sort of the massive He-Man, right? Ripped out of his mind and muscles. And all of the pictures to paint all of the impressive scenes of his life. So tearing apart a lion, as we'll see today, or ripping down city gates and carrying them, or breaking chains to his freedom, or pulling down a building in the end, his destruction. They all sort of pick up on these major images. Maybe a few of them, the tragic scene of Delilah cutting off his hair. But there's a lot more to this story and to Samson than just sort of the He-Man hero and all of these acts of strength. I think we're going to see it pretty clearly in this passage today. Uh, I've been reading this little book on Samson's life. It's written by a Jewish author named David Grossman. And there's a lot in the book that I would sort of read differently than him. But he titles the book Lion's Honey, the Myth of Samson. And he says this in the introduction that I thought was really interesting. He says, Samson the hero is what every Jewish child, the first time he or she hears the story, learns to call him. Hero. And that, more or less, is how he has been represented over the years in hundreds of works of art, theater and film, in literature of many languages. A mythic hero, a fierce warrior, the man who tore apart a lion with his bare hands, the charismatic leader of the Jews in their wars against the Philistines, and without a doubt, one of the most impetuous and colorful characters in the whole Hebrew Bible. He continues, But the way I read the story in the pages of the Bible runs against the grain of the familiar Samson. For me, this discovery, this real Samson, this recognition, is the point at which the myth, for all of its grand images, its larger-than-life adventures, slips silently into the day-to-day existence of each of us, into our most private moments, our buried secrets. If you read Samson's story correctly, as we're going to try to do over the next few weeks, it does exactly for us what it was meant to do for Israel. It wakes us up. It isn't just stories about an incredibly strong man doing unbelievable and miraculous things. It ends up being a story not just about over-the-top action, but about keeping your guard down long enough to recognize what God is doing and how he's working in this man's life. We see all of these great stories, and subtly, the story begins to slip into our mind. We let our defenses down, shocked by all of the drama of it, 
And we suddenly realize that this isn't a story about a hero or about heroics at all. It's a story about all of us. It's a story about humanity, a story about listening and paying attention to God. It's a story about being human and what it means to follow him, even though it's filled with a he-man with all of his unbelievable antics. Samson got introduced to us last chapter, chapter 13, with the simple last two sentences, he was born. And God began to stir him, if you remember the last two verses. This week, his whole story begins to pick up in chapter 14. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn there. I said in the email this week when I sent out the passage, if you read through this chapter, pay special attention to all of the senses. What Samson sees, what he tastes, what he touches, what he hears. Because we're going to see it's a key part of the story. So uh, Judges chapter 14, I'm going to read through the whole passage. It's an interesting story, so uh, it'll keep your attention. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 1. Now Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you might go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know That it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave them some of them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Companions could probably be bodyguards as well, right? You get the idea. So they're trying to make sure Samson doesn't get out of control. Verse 12. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle, uh, that way we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and I shall tell you. She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, 
If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down thirty men of the town, and took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. That's a little bit of a strange story, right? I'm sure you read this one this week, and you said, ah, I get it. This has so much application for my life, right? No, not in particular. It's a hard story, and it seems to not make a whole lot of sense the first several times you read it, to be honest. Almost every commentator points out that Samson's story, the one thing we can see pretty clearly, even the first time we read it, is driven by all the particular senses that get pulled into the story. All of the seeing, the tasting, the touching, everything that he hears and speaks. One commentator describes Samson as a sensual man. Now, that word carries with it probably a little more lustful undertones than we would use, but as we'll see in Samson's story, it probably actually fits in pretty well. Maybe the synonym that would fit best is sensuous. This idea, you look it up in the dictionary, relating to or affecting the senses rather than the intellect. It seems to be a pretty good way of describing what's going on with Samson. Pretty good way of understanding him. He's strong, capable, but he's prone to process everything that happens in life first by his senses, what he sees, what he tastes, what he hears, rather than processing much of any of it with his mind, with thought or reflection. A pretty typical way to read this passage, if you've ever heard it preached on before, is something like this. We point out how frequently Samson trusts his senses, his emotions, his feelings, and then it's easy to point to all of the destruction and violence that follows. As you'll see in the next chapter, it goes on and on. And the conclusion we pretty come, come to quickly is Samson needs self-control. Pretty easily come to that conclusion. He needs to learn to think before he acts and to process things a little deeper. It's probably a true point. There's a lot more going on in this passage than just a he-man who's out of control by his emotions. I think what it helps us understand is our own inability and honestly our impatience with this chapter, this story, trying to understand it, trying to figure out what's going on, is actually a significant part of what's happening in the story altogether, of why the story's here in the first place. It's not an easy story. It doesn't come quickly. It doesn't come simply. In fact, the whole story is a bit of a riddle, just like the riddle that Samson passes on at this ceremony, this feast for his wedding. But we can take some time and work through it. It's not easy, not quick, not simple. It takes time. It takes a little attention, a little reflection. But the thing that we've seen throughout all of these stories of judges is none of these stories come too quickly to us. But when they do, they seem to come with more depth and more meaning than we had first read or anticipated. The same proves true for Samson. It proves true for Israel. And I think we'll see how it does for us. So as we walk through it, a quick word on setting and then three things I want to look at in the passage. Uh, senses. We'll take a look at all these senses that fill the story. The novelty of this riddle. And then imagination. Probably not the three points you were anticipating for this, so we'll work through them and hopefully make sense out of them. Senses, novelty, and imagination. A quick word on setting. The story opens with Samson's discovery of a Philistine woman in Timnah. We actually know a little bit about Timnah. Archaeologists in the 70s found what they believed to be the ruined city and uncovered it. And it sets in a place called the Sorak Valley. It's just west of Jerusalem. And it literally sets in a valley that transitions from the plains, where we know the Philistines are living, up into the hill country, where we know at the time the Israelites are living. So, literally, it's the place where Israel and the Philistines come together. A natural place for moving between the two. 
And it's interesting because apparently, though we know the Philistines are oppressing and ruling over Israel, apparently it was quite easy for Samson and his family to naturally travel back and forth to the city and enter the Philistine city and marry the women there and continue back home. The ruling of these Philistines, apparently, over the Israelites is kind of a settled fact. We don't see any violence, any conflict. It seems to be pretty much accepted, as we had pointed out last week. No conflict. Here's this Philistine city in the heart of Israel. And Samson is easily able to visit the city, to take in its culture and its sights, to fall in love with its women, as we'll see him do time and time again. Right off the bat, the story is driven by Samson's sense of sight. His first point. Samson, his senses drive him throughout the entire story, but they start here with this first one of sight. We said it was the first point. The first one's obvious, first one. You can't sort of hardly miss it, right? Verse one, Samson saw a Philistine girl. He's traveling to the city and lays eyes on this girl and decides that's the girl that he needs to marry. He recounts the situation to his father, and in verse three, he tells his parents what's a striking phrase, she seemed right in my eyes. If his comment sticks in your ear a little bit, it's because it's actually a pretty common phrase and one that we're working to at the end of the book of Judges, but it's been said over and over in a different way throughout the book. His comment sticks because we've heard it before. We've been told over and over at the beginning of every passage that Israel did what was evil in God's eyes. And here's Samson apparently speaking from his perspective. It may have been wrong in God's eyes, but for him, it seemed right in his eyes. It's leading us to the final conclusion of Judges, that all of Israel did what was right in their eyes. Again, Samson becomes the picture of it. Samson's logic is pretty simple. He sees something he wants, it looks good to him, therefore it's right, and he wants it. Literally, it's about that deep in the passage. This next episode, as Samson travels with his parents to visit this girl, we get introduced to another set of senses. Apparently, they had separated briefly. Samson found himself alone in the vineyards, and all of a sudden, a roaring lion pounces upon him unexpected. Samson doesn't just kill the lion, as the passage could tell us. We're told that he has nothing in his hands, and literally, he rips the lion apart with his bare hands. The passage goes out of its way to put all of the sensory experience of touch into the episode. Hands, strength, the sound, hearing the lion's roar, the tearing of the animal into pieces. It's interesting that Samson does not share the story with his parents. You would think after defeating a lion that rushed upon you with your bare hands, you would be pretty excited to tell somebody about what you had just accomplished. We're left to speculate a little bit, but it's not entirely hard. It's possible that Samson knew that with the Nazarite vow that prohibited him from touching corpse, having to confess that he just killed a lion with his bare hands would have meant a lengthy process of going back to the tabernacle, of performing a sacrifice, and going through ritual cleansing, and that would have had one big impact that Samson was not willing to give. It would have prolonged him getting to the town and marrying this girl that he had his eyes on. So apparently, he decides that's not an option and keeps the whole event to himself, and the whole trip continues. As Samson returns to visit this Philistine girl a second time, his curiosity about this previous encounter alone with this lion causes him to go looking for the carcass, maybe to remember that moment that he's not been able to share with anyone. What he finds there is another sensory-filled experience. Here's the carcass, but inside of it is a swarm of bees and honey. You can hear the bees, this extra word, swarming around. If you were like me, I grew up, my grandpa actually raised bees out by the railroad tracks. So I remember as a kid what it was like to chew on the wax and taste the honey. And you can't help but see it and taste it, even in the story. 
Samson takes his hand and literally scrapes the honey out of the carcass and begins to eat it and gives it to his parents. It's a strange part of the story, to be totally honest. Nobody who has heard of bees taking up residence in a carcass of a lion to produce honey doesn't sound like something natural, which is we're going to see is a significant part of what happens in the story. In the next paragraph, Samson throws a wedding feast. The Hebrew word here, banquet, is also the exact same word. There's several words we could use for a feast or a banquet or a celebration. The one that gets used here is the same word that means drinking. So it's probably a subtle way of saying that this isn't just a get-together and some conversation and hors d'oeuvres. This is a drinking party for seven days with 30 of his male companions to celebrate him becoming married. What's more striking is, once again, it subtly implies that this Nazarite vow to avoid wine and any alcoholic drink is probably not on the top of Samson's mind in this celebration. At the party, he poses a bet, a riddle. It introduces more senses, sound, the rhyme of the poetry, the riddle itself. You see it in verse 14, and it's a bit strange when you first read the passage. This is the riddle he poses to his companions. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. What in the world does that mean, and why is he posing a riddle in the first place? Possibly it was a form of entertainment, something to occupy these times with these companions as time went, but also we're led on pretty early to the fact that they're not just trying to solve a riddle, they're betting over whether they can solve this riddle. There's a lot at stake here. 30 sets of undergarments and 30 sets of clothes is more than any one man would have ever owned, so for him to win in this riddle comes with some pretty big implications for what it will mean for him. For days, his fellow partiers tried to come up with the answer to the riddle, and they couldn't. Finally, four days in, they decide to threaten his new wife by burning down her home and her father's if she doesn't give up the answer. She quickly goes to Samson, presses on him for the rest of the seven days, and finally at the end, he gets tired of it all, all the crying, all of her begging. He gives up the answer. She passes it on to the other people in the town who solve the riddle, and Samson is furious. Obviously not having the payment he needs, he goes to another Philistine city, kills 30 Philistines, takes their clothes, and comes back to pay off the debt. The end of the story says that he returns home in hot anger, probably another sense, and his wife is given to his best man to marry instead of him. End of the chapter. What in the world do you do with a story like that? And what in the world does that story have anything to do with trying to follow God or pay attention to him? It's interesting to note, as we've sort of been doing throughout the book of Judges, that neither Samson nor his parents mention God anywhere in this entire passage. There are no prayers, no questions, no thankfulness, no conversations with him trying to process all of the events. Samson, though, is called, he's empowered by God, but not a moment of attention seems to be given by Samson to God in any of these events. But it would be wrong to conclude that God wasn't a part of it. In fact, every single paragraph we come to, one way or another, God gets brought up in the middle of the story. As readers, we get sort of led into something that Samson nor his parents seem to be much aware of, that God is actually at work in the middle of all of these strange and turning episodes in the passage. Let's walk back through it just real quickly and see where God sort of pops up in the middle of these experiences, this list. As Samson opens debating with his parents about this Philistine girl he wants to marry, we get this really strange verse in chapter 4. It probably stuck out to you when you read it, uh, or in verse 4. Verse 4 says, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, him wanting to marry this Philistine, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. That's a hard verse the first time you read it, because it sounds like God is intentionally causing him to want this Philistine girl so that God can bring conflict about Samson's parents, as we saw last week, 
They know the destiny that Samson has. They know what's been prophesied about him. Samson would be the one to begin the war against the Philistines, if you remember. But here comes their son, hoping instead to marry one of the Philistines. You can sort of understand why they're a bit concerned. It doesn't seem to line up with all of their expectations they had had about who Samson was or what he would do. No one in Israel, including Samson, seemed too interested in fighting or in leading rebellion, taking on the Philistines. They had hoped that Samson would be the one, but now he too, the promised one, is setting out trying to marry them, not defeat them or conquer them. There's no conflict, there's no battle, there's no rebellion forming. So God is left to pick a fight. Apparently, he decides he's willing to use Samson's senses to pull him into a conflict, a wrong relationship that he knows will push Samson towards this destiny that's ultimately been prophesied about him. As one commentator put it, given Samson's temperament, he was the ideal tool in God's hands to prove conflict with the Philistines. Samson had become Yahweh's unwitting agent provocateur. He creates the conflict, not by causing Samson to want this girl, but simply by recognizing that Samson seems all too prone to lean into his own senses, which will in the end carry him right into the conflict that God had prophesied from the beginning. In other words, to maybe put it really simply, God was at work, even when Samson didn't realize it, even when his parents thought that it was the opposite. Still, we learn as the readers that God was in the middle of it, using it, moving salvation forward, pulling Samson into his destiny. God is in the middle of the action from the very beginning when everything seemed to be going wrong. Samson's encounter with this roaring lion puts it even probably more obviously. Right there in the center of the story, verse 6, as this roaring lion comes charging against him, we read, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Right in the middle of this next episode, God. The lion's defeat may have been at Samson's hand, but the passage is pretty clear that it was God who was behind those hands, giving skill and strength and beating the lion. When Samson discovers that uh, the bees have taken up residence and produced the honey in the carpus, God isn't particularly mentioned in this passage, but the whole image is so bizarre. If you know anything about bees, they don't live in a rotting corpse. It's so bizarre, so unnatural, that you can't help but sense that something supernatural, something strange is going on here, other than just a simple passing and observing. Samson doesn't seem to recognize God in the encounter. If he does, he doesn't tip us off to it or give us any indication of it. The fact that God isn't mentioned may be the author's way of begging the question if we're coming to recognize God in each of these passages as well. There's no other explanation for what's going on in this image than God is doing something, though to be honest, we're not quite sure by this strange image. You can't read this story and not recognize, though, that this lion... This honey and the bees inside of it plays a pretty significant role. Apparently, it's still on Samson's mind throughout this wedding celebration because it's what forms the meaning of this riddle that he poses. There's something going on here, but when we first read it, just like Samson, it's hard to quite understand what exactly it is or what in the world it has to do with anything involving Samson or Israel or us. What in the world is this image supposed to mean? Uh, I put a note here. I try really hard when we do these passages of Scripture not to make the point of a passage of Scripture some strange Hebrew definition of a word that nobody but somebody who's taken a Hebrew class would understand because that doesn't seem fair, right? Like, you're supposed to understand these stories. And I think it's true. I think if you wrestled with this passage enough, you could understand what's going on in this, this strange image. But it is one of the few places where it does help to pay attention a little bit to the language. So there's a couple of really strange words that get used in this passage. For one, this word carcass gets used over and over. The Hebrew word is mepaleth. 
It's the only place in the Bible that this word is ever translated carcass or corpse. Everywhere else this word gets used, which is seven other times in the Old Testament, it's always translated as fall or ruin. So to give you an example of it, in uh, Proverbs 29.16, we read, When the wicked are multiplied, transgressions increase, but the righteous shall see their fall. This is that same word that gets used here of the corpse, ruin, or fall. Almost always it's used to describe a nation or a people that come to ruin or fall in disgrace and ruin under God's hand. Helps us understand a little bit more about what's going on with this lion. The bees get an extra word as well. We're not just told that there are bees. We're told that there is a swarm of bees, as the ESV puts it. That Hebrew word is Ada. It actually gets used a whole lot in the Old Testament, 149 times. 124 of those times, it gets translated congregation. 12 of those times, a company. Nine times, an assembly. One time, a multitude. And one time, a people. One time in the entire Old Testament, it gets translated swarm. This place, a swarm of bees. Then we read, uh, in Exodus 16, maybe to give you an example of it, we read, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The whole congregation is that same word, swarm. We get another strange picture with honey. The last time we've talked about honey in the Old Testament was in Joshua chapter 5. The Lord had sworn to the fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. This promised land. You start pretty quickly recognizing that there's something going on particularly here with the words that have been chosen and this unique image that Samson happens upon. If I could, maybe sort of paraphrase it something like this. There's no doubt Samson recognized a carcass a swarm of bees and honey, but another way all of the words could be put is something like this. And Samson, so verse 8, and Samson turned aside to see the ruin of his oppressor, and behold, there was a congregation within it, and there was flowing from them honey. It helps you understand a little bit better what this picture is that's taking place, this encounter, this image, this sensory experience that Samson has. This is a big deal. This lion that Samson has just overcome is a picture of ruin, and within the ruin is a congregation, a community, who's taking full advantage of this land of milk and honey. You can't help but pick up the connection of exactly what had been prophesied about Samson, that he would begin to bring ruin to destroy this Philistine oppressors so that Israel, this congregation, might again be able to possess and live at peace in this land flowing with milk and honey. We aren't sure how much of that Samson actually picks up on, right? Not many of us do the first time we read the passage, to be fair. It doesn't seem like Samson really understands exactly what's going on in the image either. But God is speaking to Samson, and it's remarkable because he's actually speaking Samson's language. All of the senses that Samson seems to live by, seeing, and tasting, hearing, feeling, God chooses to give him an image of his own destiny in exactly those terms. Senses, experiences hands-on application. Everything about who Samson is is right here. God seems to be saying that just as you tore apart that lion, you will tear apart the Philistines. And just as these bees have found a home and produce, peace and rest in the carcass of that lion, you will bring Israel into the full abundance of this land of milk and honey after this lion, the Philistines, have been destroyed. We aren't quite sure from the story if Samson gets it, he shares the honey with his parents, which is surprising, but he doesn't share the message. He doesn't seem to share any hope or expectation of what God is doing with them. 
just what he tastes and what he sees, this miracle of honey. What Samson does do, our second point, is he takes all of the power of this image, all of these experiences that he's having, and he turns them into a riddle, a game, a gamble. Maybe another way to put it is novelty, a little personal fun, maybe along the way a little profit. He takes this grand image of what God is calling him to, working in his life, and he reduces it down to novelty. That was our second point. He puts it this way in a riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. We aren't told what Samson expected all of his partygoers to answer that riddle to be, what the correct answer was. It's possible he understood the image to be a way of taunting them. Maybe he did understand that it was a prediction of his destruction of the Philistines, and it's his way of poking fun at them, of forcing them to figure out their own coming destruction. It's also possible that he concluded that he was the answer. He's the one that's strong, stronger than the lion who defeated it. He's the one who brings forth honey, produce, that makes life work. Whatever the answer, it seems pretty obvious with the novelty, the trivialization, that Samson's pretty significantly missed the point of what he was supposed to pick up in that encounter with that carcass, those bees, and the honey. I want to pause here for a second. Uh, I know that's a lot to work through, trying to figure out what in the world's going on in that passage. Like I said, it's a little bit of a riddle itself. But Christianity for a long time has gotten a bad rap for being anti-senses. I don't know if you know this. You probably pick this up if you have conversations with maybe somebody who's hostile to faith. We said in the beginning, it's easy to conclude from Samson's story that what he needs to do is stop paying attention to his senses. Stop tasting, stop seeing, stop listening. You just need to live and obey what you've been told. If you could just get your senses, your emotions, and your feelings in check, then you could live the way that God's calling you to. He supposedly needs to pay less attention to what he sees, what he tastes, and what he feels. But yet upon closer examination, really digging into this story, God seems to be using his senses at every turn to speak to him. God doesn't seem to be instead pulling him away from his senses, away from these experiences to self-discipline and denial. God seems to be throwing him into the middle of these grand experiences with all of his senses fully engaged, wrestling with what God is doing in these images. I read an interesting article this week by John Piper, and he said it this way that's helpful. He says, Becoming a Christian means giving up bodily pleasures for spiritual pleasures, right? Wrong. In fact, according to Jonathan Edwards, Piper writes in his sermon, The Pleasantness of Religion, Christianity increases pleasure through our bodily senses. That's not a common one. Christianity helps us better enjoy our senses. Most people, if you took a poll, man on the street, and said, uh, does Christianity help people enjoy their senses and experiences more? Most people would probably say, absolutely not. It does the opposite. It puts us in a straitjacket and locks us down and tells us not to feel anything. That got me reading a lot of Edwards this week, this sermon of his, The Pleasantness of Religion, which I won't subject you to the whole thing of. But Edwards uses this really interesting phrase to describe what's going on in this picking up of senses, the fullness of senses in Christianity. He uses the phrase that we come to develop a new sense. A sense of the heart is the way that he puts it. Edwards' idea is this, that as we begin through salvation to recognize that God is at work, that God has been at work, and that God isn't just abstractly at work, but he's here in this place, Incarnation, God made flesh, taking on our sin, working in this life, all of the difficulties. As we begin to recognize God here in this place, Edward says, it begins to develop a new sense, a sense of the heart that picks up all of these individual senses of what's happening around us and finds behind them, beneath them, God. God working, God leading. Edwards puts it this way in one passage. 
Our senses in life, touching and tasting, hearing and feeling, they all open our hearts to sensing God at work, enjoying Him. We don't merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but we have a sense about it, a sense of the gloriousness of God in our heart. There's not only a rational belief that God is holy and that holiness is a good thing, but there is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness. There's not only speculatively judging that God is gracious, but a sense of how amiable God is upon that account, or a sense of the beauty of this divine attribute. One perceives the ideas of God's glory with the same sort of indisputable immediacy as one glimpses sunlight passing through falling water. In other words, Edward seems to be saying that we come to know God by picking up all of these senses and recognizing behind them God at work, which becomes in and of itself one of these senses, a sense of the heart. The God isn't just known, isn't just believed, isn't just signed off on as true doctrine, but he's felt, experienced, integrated into living. But this deficiency, what in Samson, and to be honest, ours too, the difficulty we have reading this passage, our inability to recognize God in these senses and in these experiences, it's at the very heart of Samson, and it sees the example of it, everything that seems to be going wrong with him and Israel too. There's so much for Samson to experience, and he can't perceive any of it. He doesn't sense that God is at work. Rather, he keeps finding himself, his own experiences in these moments. To be fair, as we've said before, we didn't really recognize it the first time we read it either. I wonder how slow we are to recognize it in our own life, these riddles of what God is doing in this place, these people, these experiences, these senses. What I want to do is suggest something important. Knowing and following God is not primarily about obtaining proper theology or content about God. It's not that it we're anti-content or anti-proper theology, but it isn't sufficient. It isn't enough to know things simply about God. To really know, to really follow God, to really understand what he's doing in this life, we have to become more aware of this stuff, these experiences, this world, what's happening around us, how God is working in the midst of senses and experiences, pulling us into understanding how he's at work and what he's doing. As C.S. Lewis put it, God never meant for man to be purely spiritual creatures. That's why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life into us. We may think that rather crude and unspiritual, but God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it too. Our problem in the end, and I think this is a pretty profound point, one that honestly this passage really helped me to come to terms with. Our problem is not that we indulge ourselves too deeply in what we feel, what we sense. Our real problem is we don't indulge ourselves deep enough into what's beyond them. Let me give you some examples. We take an experience, we tend to trivialize it, steal whatever we can personally enjoy out of it, and then never recognize God as being a part of it from the beginning. Maybe a couple examples. We don't sin by simply seeing and recognizing beauty. We sin by dehumanizing it demanding it for ourselves. We turn a soul into an object that we want. We limit God's creation, take it for ourselves, and don't recognize God as a part of it. We end up in the end sinning because we see too little in it, not too much. We don't sin by tasting and enjoying great food. We sin by not recognizing with gratitude its source, the ground, the farmer, the family, God, who creates and sustains. We don't sin by tasting too little in it. We sin, or we sin by tasting too little in it, not by tasting too much. We sin by taking what God has given and making too little of it, trivializing it, 
making it a novelty, a game, a riddle, a bet, a simple enjoyment. That was our second point, novelty. You see it so profoundly in Samson's life. All of these experiences meant to bring him into union and community with God and what God is doing instead becomes for him a game, a novelty, a personal pleasure, and he misses in the end God. Not because he thought too little of his senses, but because he didn't pay enough attention to them. When we make too little of what God is doing in us, in these experiences around us, we end up forfeiting the very thing that we thought we were possessing in the experience. Lust promises us love, and in the end, it destroys it. It doesn't create it. Gluttony promises us enjoyment, and in the end, it only produces pain and sickness. Self-indulgence promises us all self-gratification. In the end, it only reduces the self to a shallow, hollowed-out craving for single individual significance. In the end, the same ends up happening to Samson. He reduces all of these experiences that God is leading, that God is working in, He reduces them down to novelty, and he loses the very thing that he thought he was possessing in those experiences. His wife betrays him. The riddle is turned on him in a pretty remarkable bit of brilliance that leaves Samson looking like the fool in the story, not the one in charge. Look, you see it in the passage, verse 18. His companions don't actually respond to the riddle with an answer, but rather they give Samson back another riddle, It only suggests that not only do they know the answer, but they've one-upped Samson in this little game. Verse 18, their riddle response. But what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? They clue and tip the hand the fact that they get the image. The answer to his question is this lion, this honey. But they push something else. They add a little bit more to it that tells us a lot about what's going on. Based on what we know about that original image, what God was trying to communicate through Samson's experience, we would expect the answer to the question to have been God. The original answer, that the Philistines would be beaten, that Samson would provide a community and land with milk and honey for his people again. God, in the end, is indeed sweeter than Israel, or to Israel than the honey, and God is indeed stronger than this lion. We expect God to be the answer. Samson knows it firsthand. I mean, after all, God was the one who produced the honey in the carcass. It was a miracle. God was the one who gave him the strength to overcome the lion with his bare hands. But something more has happened in this riddle they pose back. The men don't have God in mind at all. The answer to their riddle, the second riddle, is Samson's wife. The one is who has deceived them. For Samson, this woman has proved to be sweeter than the honey. This woman is the one thing that he demands and has to have at all other costs. And she has proven to be stronger than the lion. She's able to beat him, to tear him down and conquer him, where the lion wasn't. They know it. Samson realizes it. He comes back with the response, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, is sort of an awkward way of saying, if you hadn't messed with my wife. And it seems to give up the fact that he recognizes that this woman has taken the place and robbed him of the image, the senses of where God was leading. In the end, Samson's desire for this woman has proved to be sweeter and stronger than his desire for God, and it's cost him everything. He trivialized what God was doing, was slow to recognize it, and in the end, he loses it altogether. This woman takes the place of God and betrays him. What the story does is it ends up setting a pretty significant mold for what's to come in Samson's life. If you get this here, if you unlock this riddle, it helps you understand in pretty profound ways not only Samson, but everything that will continue to play out in the chapters to come. He's desired what he's seen, what he's tasted. He's unwilling to recognize God behind them. 
And he's not only lost what he desired, but been made a fool and brought to ruin by the very thing that he desired and wanted. You'll see at the end of Samson's life, it's no irony that he ends up having his eyes gouged out, this first sense that leads him into this long narrative of wanting, of taking, of trivializing, and making novelty. I want to suggest to you this morning that much of what we have and what we experience in this life has the opportunity to lead us into a deeper appreciation of what God is doing. As Christians, we aren't called to sort of hold ourselves away somewhere and deny experience, but rather God, just like for Samson, is working in this place and these things and what we do and what we enjoy to pull us into an understanding of how he is working, where he is leading, the salvation that is coming. But those same blessings, without the recognition of God behind them, become for us a curse, a trap. We find in them only ourselves, only our own enjoyment, only what we can get out of them. And when we do, we distort them in such a way that they take from us the very thing we were meant to find, God. They trip us, they knock us down, they make us look a fool and take from us what we thought we had all along. Finally, our last point, imagination. Probably not the word anybody was anticipating the sermon to come to a conclusion with, right? Uh, This word imagination is not one that we use particularly regularly in our culture. If you hear that word, if you hear it as the sort of conclusion of a sermon, it probably makes you wonder where in the world I'm going. Uh, The word imagination is not one that our culture is too particularly interested in, especially for adults, especially for men, especially with a strong man like Samson who's leading a nation and opening up a battle to overthrow the oppressors, a judge, imagination. But a lack of imagination is what I would characterize as the exact thing that brings Samson to his destruction. If you let me speak sort of specifically to men for a second, I am one, so this comes a little bit naturally to me. But uh, you read this passage and you recognize in it that so much of what we get handed in our culture is the call to look like Samson. We develop an imagination for God, and that sounds childish. It sounds like a waste of perfectly good productive time. But I think our culture is robbing us of something pretty profound that Samson and all of his strength and all of his power and all of his might misses himself. We're told to be like Samson, to be strong, to be direct, to be determined, focused, to know what you want, get after it, make it happen, be a man of action. Things like thinking, reflecting, attention, it's only important so long as it helps you produce something, productivity, to get something done, either faster, cheaper, better, so that you can make the next step and get a little further ahead. This idea of imagination is something that kids do with dolls and toy guns, not something that we feel particularly interested in living up in this culture of trying to be a man. Eugene Peterson, who I quote a lot, helped me with this word, imagination, probably better than anyone else. And the fact that all of this infatuation with Samson as our hero, our role model, ends up being pretty destructive in the way that we pay attention to God. He writes this. He says, in our culture right now, The imagination is maybe the least developed faculty in adults. We let other people do the imagining for us. And as a culture, we take the lowest denominator of imagination. But imagination is almost, not quite, the same thing as faith. It's that which connects what we see and what we don't see and pulls us through what we see into what we don't. If you get what he's saying, he says the imagination is the thing that helps us take all these experiences, these senses of what's happening around us, and connects them with the things we can't see or experience. God at work. He concludes, 
Now, when that imagination involves trust and participation in the unseen, it becomes faith. But imagination is the training ground for faith. The imagination is the training ground for faith was a phrase that captured me for quite a bit this week. What Peterson is saying is that imagination is simply the task of paying attention to this stuff, these experiences, these senses, what we're doing, what's happening around us, taking note of them, this taste, this thing I see, this thing I feel, these words that I'm hearing. We absorb all of these senses and then we wonder, we meditate on them. We think about and pay attention what God might be doing, how God could be working in these experiences, how these things are connected. That kind of reflective attention to God is not something that our culture teaches us to do because it's not productive enough. It doesn't move the ball forward as quickly as we would like it to. We prefer principles, to-do lists, teachers who give us clear instructions on application that we can put into practice. We don't give much sustained thought to imagining how God might be using this life and these experiences right now. Our own inability, to be honest, to wrestle with this passage is a pretty good indication of how slow and unwilling we are to really wrestle with what God might be doing. For me, I've tended to put this into practice, or tried to, by recognizing and describing themes. You start paying attention to what's happening. You start connecting the dots with conversations and experiences. And then, then you start to see patterns. And out of those patterns, you start to wonder and pray through what God might be doing, imagining. For several months, I sensed personally that God was trying to teach me about faithfulness. What does it mean to just be faithful to everything? Lately, I've been recognizing a deficiency, and I think God leading me into a time of trying to better understand prayer. It seems to be what these experiences and what I'm hearing is leading me into. There's always something going on, seems to be the point. God isn't an abstract reality, a doctrine that we memorize, a memory verse. Or rather, he's here at work, leading and guiding, pulling us into themes into his action, his salvation. The question is, can I pay attention long enough to get in on it? Samson helps us realize that that doesn't come particularly naturally to us. Our culture doesn't help, and as Peterson says, that's why we need this training ground for faith. Paying attention, a training ground for faith. The more we train this imagination, the more resource, the more strength we have for when faith is needed when there's nothing that we actually feel, nothing we particularly sense or see or taste or touch, we need something to fall back on, faith in those moments. And connecting all the dots is a way of helping us build and train for those moments of faith. I see this all the time, a devastating situation that hits people's lives, maybe a painful failure that they're forced to deal with, maybe just nagging doubts about God and emptiness. And suddenly, people say to themselves, the advice we hand to one another is, you need faith. Faith will get you through this. Believe. Faith. But oftentimes, that faith in those moments feels a lot more like an anemic muscle, weak, and atrophied, one that we haven't worked out for decades, and all of a sudden expect to rescue us and pull us into this deeper, stabilizing faith. What we find most of the time is it's just not there. There's nothing strong enough to fall back on, nothing practiced, nothing trained enough to be able to find God when there are no senses that help us. Developing an imagination that's constantly paying attention to God now, when everything is good, when these experiences are right, is this important act of training this muscle of faith to be there when we need it, to find God when these experiences aren't so obvious. Samson ends up being our example of a life in need of imagination, attention, finding the themes of God, connecting the dots, 
delving into the senses, wrestling with what God might be up to, what God is doing. Had he just imagined a little bit longer why God had put honey inside of a lion, maybe the whole story would have changed. Maybe the whole image of what he was doing and what was to be gained by this marriage would have become a new theme for him, a new way of living. And he wouldn't have been weaker for that time spent thinking and reflecting, imagining. In fact, that time spent reflecting, thinking, imagining would have only made him stronger, more aware of God, more aware of God's spirit rushing upon him, more aware of his calling, what he was created and meant to do. Imagining what God was up to wasn't a waste of time. It wasn't a female or childish calling to some fantasy. It was the very task of leading and saving Israel and following God. You can see why this passage, honestly, as I read it this week, is such an incredible story and piece of scripture, this chapter. It requires the very same imagination to try to understand this chapter that it's trying to teach us to offer to God. This passage doesn't come easily. You don't get it the first time you read it. How often we read it, don't understand it, and move on to something we can get quicker. But the passage begs of us to spend some time. It may not be easy, but connect the dots. Wrestle. Wonder. Pray. Try to pick up on the clues of what God is doing through all of these senses. I want to end with this thought. My real goal for the sermon, I know this is an introduction to probably some new ways of thinking about senses, following God. My real goal was more than anything just to pique some curiosity. To get you wondering and thinking about what you might be missing, like Samson, if you fail to pay attention. If Manoah, last week, Samson's father, who we talked about, if he taught us about responding to God when God shows up, an angel, talking to him, then Samson helps teach us about how to pay attention to God when we don't initially recognize him or recognize that he's doing anything in particular. Samson didn't, but he was wrong. God was there in every paragraph, every section. He needed only to pay attention. What's so sad about Samson's story is that Everything is right in front of him, the entire passage, and he doesn't have the discipline to recognize it or see it. He tastes it, he sees it, he hears it, he feels it, and he misses it. He thinks too little of it, these experiences. He imagines too little of what's going on in them. He trivializes, novelizes them, uses them for personal pleasure, and it costs him deeply, not only God, but these relationships, it sparks what we'll see in the chapters to come, a downward progression of revenge and violence and destruction. He's left with nothing to fall back on, but as the last sentence of the chapter says, anger, hot rage, as he returns home. Empty-handed. Forces us to wonder how much we're missing. We think there's so much to do, so much to get done, jobs that need to be worked, relationships that need to be fed, money that needs to be made, hobbies we wish we could get to, schedules are busy, there's always some breaking news story to capture our attention, some new sitcom that looks intriguing, maybe just a stupid Facebook video to waste a few minutes in between appointments. But what are we really missing, and what is it costing us when we fail to recognize God at work in these experiences? Samson's story suggests that it might be costing us far more than we care to realize, as his story did him. There's no easy way to go today and say, I'm going to start imagining. <laughs> it isn't something you put into practice today over lunch. It's a way of thinking about life, a new way of living, a way of paying attention to God. And the only real way to conclude today is in prayer. To simply say, God, wake us up. 
Let this story set in our hearts and force us to pay attention, to catch the anomalies, the strange word, the new experience, the simple enjoyment of something, and that in them we might begin not to think too little that they mean nothing but for us, but instead to find God at work in those things, pulling us in to what he might be doing. Let's close in prayer.